Here's to your success in property, finance and money management. You're listening to The Long Property Show with your hosts, Daniel Gold and Patrick Lynch. Welcome back to another episode of The Long Property Show. I'm Dan Gold. And I'm Patrick Lynch. Special guest back in the recording studio, Kate Bacos from Kate Bacos Property. Kate, how are you doing? I'm doing well and it's a delight to be back in the studio with you guys. I, I love doing these updates with you. Well, you, you set the bar very high because if my memory serves me correctly, this is all obviously on record, um, I think you predicted the bottom of the housing market when you were last on the show. It's given me a lot of kudos, but, uh, we, you know, it was more than a, a, a guess. It was an educated guess and I had a lot of, lot of information there to rely on. And, of course, we're in the coalface, so we, we feel things first um, before yeah. you know, it hits the media. Absolutely. No, terrific. So I guess um, this is a uh, the second part of a two-part series that we've run on the Long Property Show. Part one um, was very much around finance strategies for first home buyers. Um, and part two today is, is really just going to be more on the property side. So yeah. really just hoping to pick your brains in terms of what you're seeing, um, you know, at the coalface in terms of the, the market and how first home buyers are reacting to it. And then B, um, just, uh, you know, any other property tips and tricks and strategies that, that might be helpful for our first home buyer audience. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I'll share whatever I can. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's let's kind of uh, just get straight into it. Um, Kate, w- what are you seeing, generally speaking, on the ground at the moment? Um, h- how's the property market doing there for you? Maybe just for the audience that doesn't really know the the, the, the core kind of market that you focus on, yeah. give us a give us a quick update there, and and, and then we'll we'll move into what what you're seeing on the ground. So I'm a buyer's advocate, and I look after clients that are either purchasing a home or an investment and you look at your selection a little bit differently when you're either doing a home purchase or an investment purchase but in short I can cater to a lot of different buyer demographics so whether they're first home buyers, upgraders, downsizers, investors, people that are looking to invest in their SMSF and they've got the instruction from their accountant or financial planner. Um, I'm dealing with a a real breadth of, of buyers What we are seeing on the ground is obviously um, more intensive market conditions and a seller's market. Um, Following on from when we last caught up, I think we're in a buyer's market and things were pretty tough. So after our, you know, I call it the trifecta, in in around the the time of the federal election, we had three things uh, really occur that stimulated um, the market conditions for sellers and obviously made it tough for buyers. And they were first and foremost some rate cuts. We've had we had three uh, consecutive interest rate cuts last year around the time of the federal election. We obviously had a surprise election result, which meant that negative gearing was no longer in the spotlight and under threat, which was a, a huge win for investors. And we also had, as as you guys will well know, um, changes to how. Um, bank servicing was calculated and what we could call an ease in the buffering. So it, the flow-on effect meant for those who are eligible for lending, they can borrow a lot more. And that that is directly filtered out into the market and we're seeing people bidding at auction to a different limit now and it's almost been a direct correlation of increased borrowing capacity and capital growth as a direct percentage. 
So, the- so, 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 Kate, just to jump in there. So, so your office is in Yarraville. You're predominantly focusing on the on the Melbourne market. Um, yeah. Just can you tell the audience a little bit more about specifically which, which kind of um, locations you're you're most prevalent in, and then also yeah. really at, at, at what time did you experience this this change in market sentiment? Was it pretty much from the the, the federal election, or, or was it more towards the back end of last year? It was on the 19th of May, <laughs> just okay. to be specific. So I uh, woke up on Sunday morning after the election the night prior to a bunch of inquiry in my inbox and we were game on from that moment. It literally was that that rapid and we saw uh, that change in sentiment and then price increases directly after that and it was an aggressive curve. Uh, and and it's been consistent across all the, all the kind of markets? and that, Across that you, all markets. Yeah, so to to answer your first question, I'm active in the established residential um, property market and I'm not just active in Melbourne, I cover Ballarat and Geelong as well. And the regions had certainly demonstrated a little bit uh, more strength than Melbourne during the downturn and you could argue that, that Ballarat flew uh, in an upwards trajectory in the face of the other two experiencing a downturn but Geelong was less rattled than Melbourne uh, and so I, I was able to to envisage that um, you know the the change in sentiment would certainly impact Melbourne and Geelong um, house prices positively, and and that was indeed what happened. But in terms of the areas that I focus on, to put this into context, I don't do new house and land developments or fringe areas. I focus on established markets, and I, I try to target the entering areas that are likely to deliver strong capital growth. And that is in, in Geelong and Ballarat as well. So my comments are really relating to one segment of the residential property market. And I think it's very fair to say that uh, new land releases and, and house and land and off the plan um, don't necessarily perform and do what other other parts of the market will do. And I think, Kate, that resonates with our clients and listeners. Most of them are looking at those established properties. So that works well for them. Well, you mentioned about the strength of the market. What strength are you actually seeing in terms of clearance rates, uh, prices? What, what's actually happening out there? I think it's fair to say that since the, the bottom of the market, which we can now trace back to May, June last year, uh, since the the market bottomed out in the inner ring areas we really have um, increased somewhere between 10 and 15 percent in terms of, of values and that's a pretty frightening figure um, when we when we consider the impact for for buyers and borrowers but it genuinely has bounced back that hard and and uh, off the back of what type of correction over the so, you know 17, 18 years We've had well, we had, we had a, a pretty steep correction, and Melbourne came off almost ten percent. We're talking about median values here, though, so median is always a dangerous number because it's the mid data point, but it's taking into account uh, parts of the market that we're not interested in. So the areas that that we were focused on, some of them came off more than ten percent, and that that um, downturn lasted just over twelve months. So we felt the correction really starting in February 2018 and it, it was more or less um, bouncing back up by mid-year last year, albeit 
um, you know, slowly, but things really ramped up late last year. And, and Patrick, to your question about clearance rates, we've had a couple of recent clearance rates that have hit 80%, so 79 last weekend and 80 the weekend prior. They're really strong clearance rates. They indicate um, a, a very tough seller's market and Sydney's going through the same sort of thing and it's a, a nightmare for buyers. It, it really is tough. So it sounds like, Kate, that um, the, the type of sales that, that you're now seeing, um, you know, they're being recorded at levels even um, beyond what the peaks were prior to the um, to the downturn. Do you have any comments as to why, you know, it, it may have taken, say, 12 to 18 months for the for the cycle to correct, but the rebound has been, you know, more V-shaped and, and faster? Yes, I do. I would comfortably say that uh, media reporting and stock levels are the, the reasons behind that. So, in other words, the, the data that filters through reporting that we've had price growth is always delayed. It has to, you know, properties have to settle, the data has to hit our value of general, uh, it needs to be filtered into reports like what we see through CoreLogic. And by the time we get our, our quarterly market updates, they're quite dated. And so vendors who aren't active in the market and keeping a close eye on things, you know, if they're not checking out the clearance rates, they won't see the market performance until it's reported in a quarterly update. By that time, it's it's ancient news. And so the buyers that are out there feeling the heat are demanding stock, but the vendors who don't have to sell or have decided to put their selling plans on hold until the market gets better are still holding on to their keys. And so the issue that we've had has been stock shortage and um, ex- excessive buyer demand. So the demand and supply ratio has been quite imbalanced. Mm. And then I see. I suppose when when people do see stronger results coming on, that there's always just more impetus to kind of get on that bandwagon and and sell quickly. Whereas there's always the reluctance to sell into a um, you know into a troubled market because um, you're almost just like hoping that you don't have to do it. Yeah, that's right. The, the sellers that we saw selling last year had to sell. Everyone else who didn't have to sell didn't sell. So, so let's let's now turn the focus um, onto first home buyers because yeah. you know you've spoken about the Melbourne, Ballarat, Geelong markets, but can you kind of pick the eyes out um, in any more detail with respect to perhaps some of the lower price points that might be more you know suitable for first home buyers? Say between mm-hmm. like you know maybe. Um, Four hundred thousand to to seven hundred thousand. Has that subsegment of the market performed differently, in your opinion, in comparison to to the higher priced assets? Yeah, it's a great question. I've got a soft spot for first home buyers. Um, yes, it has. In short, so you will, you will all know in your business that first home buyer activity has increased, and we've got a good representation of first home buyers in the market. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, We've had credit issues over the last four or five years. The banks have been a lot harder on borrowers and they've assessed um, people with multiple debts very harshly. And you tend to find that first home buyers don't carry the multiple debts because they it's their first home. So they don't have other property assets. And typically they've, they've been saving hard and focusing on their deposit and they might not be carrying you know excessive credit card and, and car loans either so they've they've had a reasonably good run generally speaking with getting past you know the the credit um 
barrier. And then they've also been incentivised by our, our state government to uh, have stamp duty concessions um, that they give them free stamp duty up to 600,000 and a sliding scale of reduced stamp duty up to 750. So that, that segment of the market that you've mentioned, the 400 to 700 price point, really is first home buyer heartland. And we've, we've definitely seen uh, aggressive behaviour on the part of first home buyers in the inner-ring areas. So typically apartments and villa units, they've really moved in price. But what has um, filtered through is a little bit of caution around higher density dwellings and those with cladding. And whether there, whether it's a benign clad or it's a, a cladding material that could be impacted by um, fire-related issues or cracking and movement, I think the media exposure, you know, particularly when we look at the Opal Towers incident and other related issues, um, has really sparked concern for a lot of people. So it's it's caused first-time buyers to really focus on boutique blocks where you can see the brickwork and the and the mortar. And so as a result, we've got a little bit of a two-speed kind of price point for apartments it's those that are in the boutique blocks that you know have visible uh, visibility into into the the brickwork and then those that you know might have cladding or high density issues or outgoings that that spook them so it's an interesting time for first home buyers and from a lending point of view obviously Kate there are certain banks who when it comes to those apartments they do have certain minimum size the apartment so that's like the cladding is something that first home buyers need to be aware of yeah very much so there's a few things that first home buyers should be really cautious about when they're looking at apartments and i'm happy to share what we do as part of our due diligence because it's you know it can uncover some really risky or scary things and if you've done your due diligence properly then you you have confidence that you're on the right path uh, some Let, of the things- back, because because yes, yeah, so, sometimes clients I, I suppose may approach their bank or broker first. Other clients uh, may come directly to to people like yourself. So if there's a first home buyer that approaches Kate um, and they're interested in buying their first home, yeah, give us a feel for um, yeah the, the the type of key questions that you'd be recommending that they consider, and then like you said, some of the due diligence that that you'd think about. Yeah, the first thing I want them to have done is spoken to someone like you because there's no point setting up a strategy and going shopping if you don't know how much you can spend and how you need to do it. So they have to be finance ready. They need to understand exactly how they'll be structured and and what sort of deposit they need and where it's all coming from and it has to be good to go. And then we can start planning. And planning involves understanding where they want to be and that, that could be close to work or family or friends or it could be a desire to be, you know, in a particular um, location or distance to the city because of a preference for an area. Once you've got area underway, you can then start zoning in on, on what you might want to look at. But I'm very reluctant to see them buy anything that the bank won't like because they'll just hit roadblocks and, and stressful issues. So that includes the internal size of the unit. If it's internal floor area, not counting balcony and eaves and car park, is less than 50 square metres, they're getting lots of warning bells from me because lenders just don't like those assets, as you well know. Yep, yep, absolutely. And and then um, I suppose we've also seen first-time buyers that that become interested in properties that may have some kind of commercial zoning. That would be another Mm. example of what you're 
talking about? Yeah, anything relating to its title that the bank won't like. There's a couple of different classifications. First is zoning. We need to look at residential and in some cases mixed use might be allowable, but I'm very, very uh, firm about avoiding commercially zoned properties. Even if they look and feel like a residence, if they're commercially zoned, it could introduce um, some, some real nightmares for them. And then the, the other title type, if you're in Melbourne, is company share, which is a, a, an old style um, subdivision or lack thereof, dating back to the almost the turn of the century. And you tend to find it with Art Deco era properties, particularly around Bayside and Glen Ira, but not only there, I've seen them in the north as well. And it, it means that you're not buying a strata property with its own land allotment, but you're buying a share in a company. And the bank views that very, very differently to what they would a strata. And there's a, a quirky term, stratum, which fits somewhere in between the two, but the reality is lenders consider stratum in the same vein as they consider company share. So buyers... Yeah, we had a company share just last week and and uh, whilst the client was pre-approved to buy a property for up to 90% yep. um, loan-to-value ratio, the, the bank restricted that to 70% with the, oh. with the company title, which you say is similar to stratum. Yeah, that's right. And and I've seen lenders look at 60% loan-to-value ratio. So what that means is if you haven't got the right deposit, you can't buy that property. And a lot of people get excited because the the difficult zonings or the difficult title types uh, have a, a reflected price differential. They're much cheaper. And the reason why they're cheaper is demand is less because they're a hurdle to climb over. They're a challenging property to finance. There's no point thinking you've bought a bargain if you can't finance it. With with first home buyers, Kate, I mean, you've bought literally thousands of properties for clients and, and first home buyers over the years. Retrospectively, where do you feel that first home buyers often um, get it wrong? Do, do you ever kind of get feedback, um, you know, post acquisition, even if it's you know years later, when they feel that they, in hindsight, could have done something better or differently? Yeah, great question. There's a few things they get wrong. Um, when they keep missing out because they aren't paying attention to values and they're, they're looking at what the agent's quote range is, they can be mucking around in a market for months if they're not uh, being realistic and looking at genuine sold prices rather than agent's quotes. And in a moving market, let's say our market does 10% this year, if it takes six months for that first home buyer to get their property, they've lost Five percent, so they've given up five percent of of their currency to to get that acquisition sorted, and it, you know time really costs you in a moving market. So that's the first mistake I see them make. Uh, the second one is compromising because they're desperate or exhausted, and doing something like buying on a main road or buying a property that isn't isn't an A grade property, and they know it, but they're just so exhausted or they're feeling desperate. So letting FOMO kick in and uh, letting go of your, your criteria is a mistake. I'd rather see someone um, re- reconsider their location and get a quality A-grade property than just force a bad purchase in the area that, that they've initially targeted. Makes yeah. sense. What, what, what about for the first time buyer that you detect um, their whole situation is just going to change significantly within a short period of time. So whilst, you know, the, the first home that they're considering now might be perfect for today, 
um, mm-hmm. realistically, it could be totally unsuitable in the next two to three years. If you sense that, um, yeah. you know, what kind of conversations are you having with that with that prospective client? I tell people that they should try and future-proof to five years. If they can see that they have a, a changing need within five years, they shouldn't be making the acquisition. They should be thinking about a different way forward. And the reason for that is uh, acquisition and divestment costs, so trading costs in, in the property market, is very, very costly. You've got stamp duty. And even if you've got the free stamp duty via the concession, you only get one crack at it, so you're wasting it. Uh, You've got agent selling costs and you've got marketing costs. And I'm really reluctant to see someone waste that money to trade if they know that they won't get five happy years out of that property. But on the flip side of that, when people look beyond five years and start envisaging where they'll be in 10 years' time, they can choose an area that they won't necessarily be happy in in the short term and, and they're looking too far forward at a life that they may never um, lead in the way that they thought they would. So, for example, if they're thinking about a family home and they're, they're not even um, in a partnership and having children yet, they might find themselves um, stuck in, in the boring parts of an outer suburb um, wishing that they were living life to, to its fullest in the inner ring. So, so in terms of that, Kate, I mean, we've spoken a little bit previously about rent vesting, where yes. maybe a client will kind of say, well, I really want to live here, but I can't afford here. How do you help those first home yeah. buyers? I love the idea of rent vesting for the right reasons. There's, you know, obviously there are times when it's not that good an idea, but rent vesting effectively means that you can put your money where it will work its hardest for you and you can live where you want to live. And I could think of a couple of examples. I, I had a client who's um, renting with house sharers in Brunswick and loving that lifestyle, but was really excited about spending six fifty on something that could outperform for them. And I determined with them that, you know, based on their ability to add value and their risk profile, we could spend six fifty on a property near the, the new Sunshine Hospital at the southern part of St Albans. They could buy a house on its own block of land and potentially, you know, update the kitchen and bathroom in time, um, pop a, a tenant in there and experience some good capital growth, probably more so than what they could experience if they bought an apartment in Brunswick. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then obviously there's some, um, you know, further tax benefits potentially via negative gearing that, that can, you know, assist in, in the cash flow yeah. equation there there as well. Um, plus yeah. with, with yields being on the lower side in Melbourne and, and, and possibly even lowering further with the rising growth in the market, um, you know, it, it can just be effectively a lot, a lot cheaper month to month by, by following that course. Yes, absolutely. There's all kinds of reasons why rent vesting can be great. There, there are also reasons why it, it may not be. And in particular, if that investor is is thinking that they might want to release some capital and get their hands on the money to, to buy the house of their dreams in a few years' time, then I will caution against rent vesting because you want it to be you know, something that you're doing for the long haul. And that's what investing is all about. So it, it needs to be something that fits their long-term strategy. Otherwise, I, I am loath to encourage them to do it. Kate, just um, moving on now to, and, and we can kind of maybe end with some of this property strategy and, and, and you know, discussion around the detail of acquiring a property. But, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that there are property strategists that, um, or, or, or buyers advocates 
uh, on one end of the spectrum that are literally just bidding for a client at, a, at an auction. Then there are others like yourself w- which provide all, all this, you know, correct strategy and 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 uh, uh, you know prop, um, property search and 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 end to end kind of service. Yes. Um, a, a lot of a lot of first home buyers approach us and, and start asking us for strategy around. All right, we found this suitable property. You know, now what should we put an offer in early or or um, you know how do we play all these games with agents and um, Whilst you guys do offer so much value on the on the strategy side, at the end of the day, you know your negotiation skills and, and acquisition skills are second to none. So, love to just pick your brain on on some some ideas there for first home buyers. Um, what happens when a first home buyer identifies a property that they're really interested in? Um, you know, what what are the next steps? I mean, first of all, how do they form a view really as to how they should go into the maybe negotiation of that property or yeah. uh, or setting realistic budgets? The first thing they should do before they start asking the agent for contracts or asking the agent if they can buy it prior is have a firm grip on where they think value sits. And there's no point looking at the quote range or asking the agent. They've actually got to be prepared to do some homework themselves. And one of the most fundamental earliest things that any buyer can do is familiarise themselves with the market before they jump into it. The simple way to do it is to get onto a search engine and look at the sold tab, not the for sale tab, but the sold tab, and just stretch back a couple of months. So you might be looking, for example, November to now. So you're covering off three or four months there of relevant data. If you go before before October last year, you're really looking at dated sales results and the market has moved since then. So if we focus on uh, recent sales and we focus on the exact area that we're interested in and we look at the types of dwellings that that we're searching up, I just get them to look at all of the relevant recently sold properties that are representative of what they'd like to buy. And if they're all over budget, then the short answer is they're looking in the wrong spot. And when I see first-time buyers making classic mistakes it's that they keep looking in the same area after they get smashed at auction week after week they're not paying attention to the fact that the price guides are not guides they're they're just um unfortunately in a lot of cases bait so they have to be confident that they've got the right dollars for the property that they want and once they're looking in the right areas and they've got a, a bit of familiarity with recently sold properties that's when they can have a chat with the agent because an agent will be more prepared to to talk openly about price and about buying prior when they know that they're dealing with a buyer who is switched on and has the right dollars. So that's the the first tip that I've got. If they're familiar with the price and they see the property and they think that it's suitable for them and they're confident that they can afford it, they then have to find out if it has to go to auction or if it can be sold prior. And there are some properties that legally have to run to auction. So there's no point trying to arm twist the agent into a sale prior if if the agent can't sell it prior. And Can you like, give us a few examples, Kate, of, of what you're referring to there? What what legally has to go to auction? Uh, if it's a, a deceased estate and there's a court order, if, if there's any kind of dispute between um, owners and it, and it has to go to public auction, sometimes there might be a court order um, on, a, on a divorce case, a mortgagee sale, if the banks determine that it has to be sold via auction method, uh, it could have a super low reserve, but it has to go to auction. The agent so will tell you. Outside of those um, kind of cases which are 
probably fewer that um that you know less the norm yeah in in strong market yep. what how receptive are you finding agents at the moment to to taking on offers um prior to auction and and, and do you think it's a an effective strategy not always i think it can be a terrible idea if a property's running hot and the agent knows it, they will do their best to keep it running to auction because they want an, an amazing sales result and they want their name in lights. Likewise, if the vendor has said, we want an auction, they, they will follow the vendor's instruction. Um, in a really hot market, you, you'll find that the only real way to spark the vendor's attention if they did want to try their luck at auction is to make them an offer they can't refuse, which means you might be setting a land speed record. I don't recommend that. Um, if you've got a vendor, though, who has some other quirks associated with their requirements, so, for example, they might need it to sell on a particular date or it could be a very, very uncomfortably short settlement that they're after or they might have a, a need to rent back the property or something unusual, you might just have some luck there because it's a quirky situation that isn't for every buyer and the agent might be happy to, to sell it to the right buyer who can meet those conditions. So it, it does pay to ask the agent, Firstly, are they open to selling it and would you back the vendor selling it because you don't want the agent to block you or to, to tell the vendor that their advice is to run it to auction. And then you've got to be able to say to the agent, well, if I was to consider taking it off the market, what sort of figure would I, would I need to arrive at to do so? So if you can have those conversations before you go signing contracts, you can really pave out you know, the way that you want to move forward without giving your own um, position away. And if you're getting to that stage, Kate, I mean, what are you recommending clients who are very keen to make an offer pre-auction in yeah. terms of contract reviews, uh, building and test inspections? What are your recommendations there? My recommendations is pretend you're going to an auction when it comes to your due diligence because you, you won't find it easy to have any conditions in your contract. And the agent may be prepared to sell it prior but may wish to do it in the final three business days before the scheduled auction, which means that you're buying under auction conditions and you have no cooling off period. So you have to be prepared to be unconditional if you're wanting to bring uh, an auction campaign to a head earlier. And that, that includes having a building inspection done, absolutely having a contract review done. Contract review is the one I'm the most serious about with all of my um, preparation and due diligence. I will not bid or negotiate for any client who hasn't had a full contract review done with notes over to me from the solicitor or conveyancer. Yeah, makes sense. And and just um, I know it's hard to generalise, but um, do, do do you sense that that ultimately buyers um, can ultimately pay less if if they just do kind of wait and compete in that um, live auction in scenario, or yeah. or have Sometimes, you found that you yeah. might be able to? Spend it? the cheaper deal by uh, by taking it off market sooner? Uh, if, you, if you say to anyone who's aware of their values and has everything uh, ready to go, what what is your maximum limit for this property, they'll, they'll either get smashed at auction, unfortunately, or they will buy with some um, spare change left over. It's very, very unusual that you'll bid to your absolute limit. It can happen and it happened to me a couple of weeks ago, but it's very, very rare. So if you're prepared to take a property off the market by stretching to your absolute limit, you need to be aware that you could be paying a very strong premium. And if the bank valuer disagrees with you, you're in trouble. So 
it's all well and good to tempt the vendor to sell it prior, but a, a valuer will raise more of an eyebrow at a strong pre-auction sales result than a strong auction result. Yeah, makes sense. And and, and maybe, um, you know, like auction strategies is a whole not, another podcast, so we won't, won't dwell on it now. But um, I, I think would it be fair to say just in closing, Kate, that that confidence wins auctions. Are you, are you in that camp? Uh, planning and confidence. Planning more so than confidence. I've seen people shaking in their boots and, and bidding to a plan and they've done really well. It's when you don't have a plan, you can be as confident as you like. But if you've gone into an auction thinking uh, the, re- the likely um, price tag that I'm willing to bid to is somewhere around 600 for argument's sake, and then you get there and you can see that there's competitive bidding above 600, Social proof will suggest that you haven't done enough homework and you could be making decisions and formulating an increased purchase price on the run. And if you can visualise trying to have a conversation with your partner while you're calling your broker or chatting to your mum and dad on the phone with a guy yelling at you with a gavel in his hand and 100 people staring at you, it's a very intimidating and awkward way to try and reset a new price tag. So my recommendation is have your maximum price limit absolutely ironed out before the auction bell starts. Amazing, Kate. Your insights, most appreciated, most most helpful as always. In, in closing, any any kind of final thoughts that or, or, or summary kind of points that you'd like to make for first-time buyers regarding property strategy? Yeah, be really confident about what it is that you want and what you're looking for and don't pull in too many opinions. I've seen so many well-thought-out strategies and ideas uh, get squashed by well-meaning parents and friends that ultimately aren't going to be living in the property or funding it. Amazing. Good on you, Kate. Thanks again for your time. And, and um, as always to our audience, if you've got any questions on today's show, feel free to just shoot us an email. Hi at longproperty.com.au. If they're for myself or Patty or Kate, we'll get them to the right people and, and we'll have them answered for you quickly. Have a great day, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Long Property Show. If you have any questions for Dan or Patty, you can email hi at longproperty.com.au and they'll respond within 24 hours. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and also leave us a review. This way we can continue bringing you the best weekly content possible. See you again next week. Bye for now.